On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking politics and how politics is affecting what's going on with the COVID response at all the different levels. Because I really believe that it's having an effect in a way that we don't really want it to. Maybe that's obvious to you, but we'll talk about that one. We're also going to be chatting about the most overrated player in the NFL, at least my pick of who that might be. Who do you think it should be? Well, stick around for that one. And then we talked to Don Danko, head of the chairman, uh, chairperson of the Hamilton Public School Board about the return to school in Hamilton on Monday. A lot of different issues relate to this, health-wise, education-wise, lots of meat on the bone there. She dives into all these things. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Want to bring in Stephen LeDrew. He is a political commentator. He is host of the three-minute interview, which you can find on YouTube, which is terrific. If you want to deal with a bunch of issues in a nice little bite-sized morsel, go look that one up. Also, president, a former president of the Liberal Party of Canada. He joins me now. Stephen, how are you tonight? Very, very well. Glad to hear that little version of um, the, the, the song, um, Richie. It was like, you're a traditionalist, yep. aren't you? That's good. Well, you know, we try. Thing. We try. I'm I'm a, an, an originalist. If I was in the States with the Constitution, I'd be an originalist, I think, is what they call it, don't they? Absolutely. They'd put you on the so, Supreme Court. So, Stephen, I had an epiphany the other day, and I wanted to have you on to talk about it. Now, some people are going to say this is really stupid. Some people are going to say, well, you should have thought of this months ago. It, You know, sometimes I arrive at these things late. Good. If you live in Ontario and you are a conservative by voting or small C or capital C, you, in all likelihood, believe everything that is going on right now wrong is Justin Trudeau's fault. If you are a liberal and you live in Ontario, you almost certainly believe everything that is going wrong is Doug Ford's fault. If you're an NDP or you think if we just threw money at it, it would solve all the problems. But nonetheless, we'll leave them out for a second. <laughs> it, the idea, though, is we're not dealing right now with a pandemic. It doesn't seem to me. We are dealing with an election campaign wrapped in a pandemic. Wow, that's interesting. Well, I think the pandemic started the election campaign, but when you were just talking about the scenario about people believing who is at fault, it reminded me of uh, the old days when in the last 50 years of the past century, 1950s to 2000, it was generally a federal liberal party in power, and generally a conservative party in power in Ontario, and people liked it that way because they would do exactly what you said. Well, everything bad is those uh, feds and everything good is uh, the province or vice versa. And um, we may be getting back to that. And uh, that wouldn't be bad. It was, uh, it was generally good government. But I mean, it's going to take us, uh, I can hear all your, your listeners now saying, good government out of Ottawa. <laughs> we haven't had a lot of that federally, but uh, that's the politics of it. But when you're also saying about the conservatives and the, and the liberals, I think that we, this may bring about a huge sea change in politics because the liberals federally, and people say, well, you're no longer a liberal, LeDrew. I know I'm a liberal. Justin Trudeau is not a liberal. He is, quote, a progressive. He is over there with the NDP, a real lefty. Do as I say, not as I do. And we may be changing, you know, there may be a sea change in politics in Canada because of where Trudeau is going so far left and so incompetent. Well, it, it seems to me, though, that what, what is happening here is that this has become simply a war over 
not even necessarily solving the problems. Rather, it's about who can message better that we are not at fault and the other side is at fault. It, I mean, the problem, so many of the problems seem to be getting left behind and no one really has an answer for anything. So it's just blame everyone else and make sure none of the crap flies into our face. Well, you're right about the, the messaging, but the messaging in this case, I would, I would argue, Scott, is to hide the incompetence. By and large, the provincial government uh, has been delivering what they've been given. They've been managing the schools and managing the lockdown, and there's lots of arguments about that. I, I think the lockdown is, uh, is uh, using a sledgehammer instead of a scalpel. Um, but uh, you know, they, are, they are in there with their, uh, with their sleeves rolled up trying to do the job. The federal government has just been missing in action. I mean, their job was to get uh, the vaccines, and they haven't. All they've been doing is giving money out, like billions of dollars out, sometimes to very close friends of theirs, and they have no idea where it's going, and it's a, it's, it's a, it's a scandal. So, yes, they can message, but I think most Ontarians and most Canadians are going to come down to it and say, okay, you had one thing to do really well. That was to get the vaccines. And now... Uh, it came out uh, this morning, we are at the very end of the G8 countries. I mean, everybody's doing better than Canada, and now we're starting to suck the vaccines away from the poor countries. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking with Stephen Ledrew, a political commentator, guy behind the three-minute interview on YouTube, former president of the Liberal Party of Canada, about what's going on and about my epiphany that everything is not about solving, at least what I think is an epiphany, everything is not about solving the problem with the pandemic. It's all about fighting a political campaign wrapped in the pandemic. You can agree, you can disagree. But Stephen, just before the break, I said, I think in a lot of these cases, in many cases, maybe most cases, it seems that both sides are way more interested in scoring points and taking shots than coming up with concrete solutions. Agree or disagree? I agree with you on that. And I think that one of the reasons why we are in this situation is that there's so much blame to go around. In other ah, words, this mm. has been mishandled from the start. I remember a year ago, more than a year ago, it was, I guess, uh, uh, a year and two weeks when this thing started to hit, and politicians were saying, well, we can't test people coming back from China. That would be racist. And, and they don't say that now, but... Well, we can't test them at all. And then they said, we're going to close the border. We know that the border has never been closed. They said, we're going to test people coming in, flying in. And we know of even now we have plane loads of people coming into Pearson Airport in Mississauga who have not been tested and are not about to be tested, and they are just sold, go, go your way. They go onto a bus and they spread whatever they have all around. We have federal ministers saying, well, it's not being spread by people coming into the country. I mean... We have had so many muck-ups. That's a polite way to say it on radio. Uh, <laughs> that it's, uh, there's lots to go around, and so the politicians then are looking for cover. And yes, they're blaming each other on that. What is interesting, though, Scott, is that where is the provincial NDP and liberals on this? They aren't out there saying, you should have done X, Y, and Z instead of ABC. They're nowhere to be seen. And likewise, federally, the Tories... Uh, are not very uh, evident either. They aren't out there saying what should have been done. So you do have the federal liberals fighting the provincial Tories. 
It is very true. And, and the NDP, you know, for those NDP listeners uh, who are listening to this show, uh, it's not that we're anti-NDP, it's that your party has not found its niche in this thing, I don't think, because you're right. I don't think we've heard Jagmeet Singh has been absent for the most part. Andrea Horvath has sent out a bevy of of press releases saying we demand this and we demand this and we demand this, but it's it's really a, a amounted to nothing. So Stephen, here's the, here's the part about this, where this thing now to me becomes problematic. All right. We know politics is politics. We know people fight all the time, but we also know, even if we disagree with the other party, some things they've done, no matter which side you're on, some things the other guys have done have been okay. And some things we've done haven't been as good, but we can't admit the other side may have done anything good because that would then give them points for their reelection or whatever else. And so now, even if there's a good solution somewhere, we seem to want to fight against the good thing because we can't let them score that point. Well, well, that's a very good point, except for perhaps, Scott, there aren't that many good things that have happened. Mm. Tell me throughout this, one good, real major point that, uh, that either the feds or the province has done. Um, people were talking about the great leadership of both the premier and the prime minister on the news every day, keeping people abreast last spring. Well, yeah, that was last spring, and the feds were just pouring money everywhere, and uh, the province was sort of locking down in the spring. But that's passe now. And, you know, we've learned a lot more. You and I have, your listeners have, the politicians I don't think have, uh, we have people all around the medical profession and around the world saying lockdown is not the answer. And our professional politicians and medical advisors are saying, well, obviously, lockdown is the uh, answer. And um, it's causing tremendous pain and suffering and uh, and death. So what are they well, you're right. Y- y- no, you're right. It- it's largely, it's largely not been something that they're going to write textbooks on about how to handle these things down the road. I mean, I can think of, all right, I'll give the, the federal liberal something. I think while it was abused in some ways, I think CERB was a really good thing at the time to get people through a very difficult time. I give them credit for CERB. I, I think it could have been dealt with a little bit differently, but I'm not going to be too picky on that one. I think that was generally a good thing and That's more, great. and even... And, and provincially, I think, you know, even recently we've seen a fantastic effort made to try and uh, create ways for small businesses to get grants and a streamlined thing that we would look at. But even those things, the other side is not permitted, it seems, to give any credit for. So you fight even the few good things that maybe we should be building on instead of fighting. Well, I, I, I hear you and I think you're right on that. So that, what does that say? What conclusion can you draw from that, Scott? The conclusion I draw from it is that all the politicians are just running scared. They are uh, they're doing some good things right, uh, but not enough. And so they have to start laying out blame. And because it is just such a traumatic time for people, this is the first generation since World War II where we've had people not knowing what's next. What's coming next? We don't know. There's a big unknown out there. And uh, same with these politicians. And whether you're an actor like uh, Trudeau or a businessman like Ford, you don't know what's coming next, and therefore you're lashing out. And that's just a, maybe it's just a, a normal human reaction. It's not an enviable one. It's not something that you and I or your listeners want to emulate. But uh, I think that's just the reaction. So you put your finger on mm. something that's valid. 
I guess the best thing to conclude from it is that we should wish that it wasn't valid, and uh, we should encourage our politicians to um, to learn from it and be more positive about things, because that is what is is really missing, the positivity. You know, even during World War II, we had leaders like FDR, Churchill, who were saying, you know what, this is rotten. It is a really crappy time. And stick with us, and it's going to get better. And there's hope. And all we have now is politicians saying, yeah, hmm. it's crappy. And, um, <laughs> That's right. Just don't listen to the better. other guy. Just don't listen to the other guy. Yeah. Stephen LeDrew, <laughs> you can find him on YouTube. Three-minute interview. Go look it up. You can also find him lots of other places. Stephen, always appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for doing this. Always great to be on your show. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to bring in Steve Foxcroft. He's, uh, you see him around. He's commenting on sports. You see him holding the sticks on the sideline, the, the yardsticks at the Buffalo Bills game is an official. He's an NBA officiating official. What do you call yourself, Steve, with the NBA? It's an official's official. We, you officiate the official. Right? There. We call ourselves courtside administrators. Oh, that sounds, okay, that's way more, that's way better than what I came up with. (laughs) Well, you know, that's the thing, right? Make it sound like you're better than you are. You're more important than you are. That's what we do. We're good at that. Uh, Well, you know what? It's an important job to make sure the officials, look, the NBA once upon a time had a guy who went a little, a little rogue, and it's great that that league and others now closely monitor their officials to make sure that doesn't happen. And so it's an important job. Let me go to football first, though, Steve, to your other officiating job, to the football side, the NFL side. The Super Bowl is this Sunday. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers with Tom Brady against the Kansas City Chiefs with Patrick Mahomes. The latter who, and I will fight anyone to the death on this one almost, I believe, and I believe wholeheartedly, that Patrick Mahomes, for all the the for Tony Romo drooling over him in his comments all the time during games, Patrick Mahomes is the most overrated player in the NFL, and it's not even close. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think he's a product of a good system and a good coach and a couple of safety valves with Hill and Kelsey. Um, you may be proven correctly with his offensive line being obliterated this week, three of them out. So you, it's going to be interesting. I have a feeling he is going to have to get rid of the football very quickly and make those split decisions. So hey, I, I believe whole Steve, I believe without question now, whether he has a line or not. And here's the reason I say he's the most overrated guy. He has got the most loaded offense. He has got up until this weekend, the most wonderful offensive line buying him time. He's got an amazing defense that lets him be on the field all the time. He has a tight end that because of Hill, he's always got an open tight end because everyone's backing off. You could take any of the top 15 quarterbacks in the NFL and drop them into that offense and they would all do every bit as well as Patrick Mahomes. But if you take Patrick Mahomes and put him on, say, Detroit or some other crappy team, they're not suddenly a great team. He is a product of his environment there, unlike someone like Josh Allen in Buffalo, who was with a crappy team, and as he got better, he dragged the team along with him. Okay, let's. I'll give you this argument, though. Josh Allen also got better people around him, too. Right. Yes. They went out, yes. Uh, even Gabe Davis was good, but Stefan Diggs, what an acquisition. So I think I am going to hold you to this Sunday 
to see if you're proven absolutely correct. I'd say you could go as far as five to ten other quarterbacks put in that system and then see what happens because you got to give him some credit because he's, oh, I'm not, he's not a bad player. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. I, uh, just to be clear, I don't, I'm not saying Patrick Mahomes is a bad player. He's a very, very good player. I'm not, I'm not dumping on the guy's abilities. What I'm saying is when you listen to Tony Romo and others rave about this guy, like somehow they're already talking about him. Seriously, they're already talking about him in the conversation of greatest of all time. He's played what, five years. He's yeah, won one yeah. Super Bowl. Okay, he is so that I'm and they're, agree with you on. Like they're already saying that this is what the goat and the goat, the the kid, right? The Billy goat, the kid goat. So yeah. I agree with that. And and the other thing is what to prove to go to your point a little bit more is he has been put in that system for a while. So he, if you say he's a good quarterback, even a Pro Bowl quarterback, that's fine. But you're just not saying, but you can't call him the legend in the making no. the best of all time. Okay. But that's what they're that. doing. That's what they're doing. And and I remember like last weekend, last weekend, the weekend before when Buffalo played Kansas City, you know, you listen and again, this, this may be me being sort of tarred by the Tony Romo over the top gloriousness thing, but Patrick Mahomes drops back and throws a sidearm pass. And Tony Romo sounds like he's about to burst an aorta with joy at the cleverness of this. And then Josh Allen goes back and throws a sidearm pass and it's like, yeah, whatever. And like, it's not, it's every quarterback. Uh, Aaron Rodgers has thrown sidearm passes for the last 15 years to get to do the exact same stuff. It's just so over the top. He's a very good player. But when you start saying this guy is someone who, who was it who said the other day that um, this guy will be in, he'll, he'll maybe be the greatest quarterback of all time play for more than five years or whatever it is and win more than one Super Bowl and do it on a team that has some weaknesses. And then we can talk, but holy moly, are they ever plugging this guy way beyond what he should be? Okay, so I'll, I'll go with you, too, because they are. They're doing them way more than he should be. And you gave an excellent example earlier. Put him on the Lions. Put him on the Lions and see what he is. You know what? If he's on the Lions, they don't even get primetime games because they're If he's on the Lions, he's dead. He's yeah, killed. He's, yeah, he's dead. You're right. So I agree. But you got to – yeah, he is a very good quarterback. I'd say yep. even maybe a Pro Bowl quarterback, but – the, if he's on a team like that, we would find out very quickly. But I, I will agree, you cannot anoint him as the best of all time, the future GOAT. He'll overpass, uh, surpass Brady. Like, Brady's gone a long time, 10 years. And, you know, in the NFL, too, you're quick, you can quickly become a mediocre team. You know, just like very you quickly. quickly become a decent team, like the Bills. Very, very quickly. Yeah. You know what? Tom Brady, we've got to take a break. Tom Brady after this Super Bowl will have been to almost 20% of the Super Bowls that have been held. So when Patrick Mahomes gets up to even 10%, then we can start talking. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's switch for a second here. There's another big story going on in sports. There was a huge amount of publicity about a month ago, maybe a little bit less than that. Because the National Women's Hockey League was going to be playing. They were going to be in a bubble in Lake Placid. They were going to compress their season into one tournament. And NBC was on board and was going to televise the playoffs and everything else. Well, two teams out of the six leading into this 
pulled out because of COVID problems. And now the entire rest of the season has been canceled. And I got to tell you, I can't, I, I feel terrible for the women in this because you finally get an opportunity to expose women's hockey and hopefully get some attention. And it, it, it just seems, how do you possibly create a bubble and yet have every team have to pull out of this thing? I just don't, I don't get how the, how, how this gets mangled like this. And you know, they, and they couldn't get to the bubble. That was the problem, right? They couldn't even get as far as the bubble. I think with a lot of these situations, it's almost like the world juniors, they had to get to the bubble and then, and then they'd be okay, but they couldn't do that. And what a shame this is because a great chance to showcase their sport and they have a American network signed on to cover the games. So I think that's a, it's just a sad state and they're just on the verge of doing it. And, you know, I also think that the NHL, it'd be nice to see the NHL get involved and have them as part of their cities. Like the, the NHL team in that city also run this one. And I think that would be good. And that would follow the model of the WNBA, yes. which is yes. to survive, right? Like they survived. And I think one of the huge successes of that, that's why they survived because the parent, if you will, was the, the NBA team in that city. But this to me is the sad part of this story that it seems that women's hockey, and I'm a supporter of women's hockey and anyone who's ever read anything in the paper will know I'm not just blowing smoke. I've written tons about it and I've talked about it on the show. I support women's hockey, but it seems that every single time, and it's not the players, but every single time something good is about to happen, they somehow shoot themselves in the foot from the administrative side. So here, you know, World Juniors was able to work in a bubble. Mm-hmm. and the NBA and NHL and all the rest, this is the one that seems to not be able to do it. You ask about why the NHL is not involved. Well, because the CWHL, the Canadian one that folded, and the NWHL can't get along with each other, and the NHL has said, when you guys figure it out, come to us. That's what we've been told is going to happen. They don't want The NHL doesn't want to get in with dueling leagues. So come to us when you figure out what it is you want. Now you've got the players from the CWHL who are playing in the PWPHL, this traveling league that like it just figure it out. That's all I'm saying. I I agree with you. Get the NHL involved, but for goodness sakes, figure it out so you can make this sport go. And you have to do that because you have to know your place, right? If you're a hamburger joint, don't try and sell filet mignon. And and same here, I think you got to know your place and you can't have two leagues at that level competing against one another. It would be like the Canadian Professional Soccer League having another Canadian Professional Soccer League. Like, know your place in, in the food chain of things and get yourself together and get along. Get well, and along. you can build up. When you say you know your place, you, can, you, you don't have to stay at that place. Uh, right? No. So, so at this point, get started, get established, and climb your way up the food chain. And I believe that if they could get the NHL support, if they could sort this out, they would climb up the food chain. And when you say, and the money would go up and the salaries would go up and the support would go up. We saw that with the WNBA. It was not in good shape at the beginning, but it has carved out its niche. You know, if the, you talk about the the Canadian Premier League, the soccer, if that league decided, you know what, we're going to be in competition with Premier League soccer, people would go, come on come on, you're not. And so 
you have an opportunity here to start building something and no, you're not going to start at the level of the NHL, but build something and work towards it. And it just, as I say, it just seems so disappointing because every time, and it's not the player's fault, every time something seems to just pull the rug out from under and go, Oh, well that fell apart again. And the best thing about it, Scott, it's a great product. It's entertaining product. Like, I've been down to the United States to watch a lot of Division One, like at Cornell and all that. The women's and the men's hockey down there, it's entertaining. They get a lot of people out to the games. It's, it's a good product. And to give you another local example of what I'm saying, too, is the Hamilton Honey Badgers and Mike Morielli's League, the CEBL Basketball League. How yep. There was also that NBL League and all that. But eventually the strong survived. But a great product. Get yourself a seat at the table, provide that great product, build a little bit of audience, and then like what you say, you don't have to stay there. Then you can grow it. Like the CEBL thing, they had a little a CBC covered their games in the bubble yep. last, earlier. So that's what the, I think the women's hockey has to do too. I, I love what you said there. Don't be satisfied with where you're at, but get yourself together, get along, get a seat at the table, and then grow it. Yeah. And I want, the, I want them to, I want them to succeed. I want Laura Fortino and Sarah Nurse and Renata Fast and all these other women who have played on the national team or, um, you know, who have uh, Hunter Accursi, Taylor Accursi from around here who are playing in the NWHL. I want them to have some place to play. It, and I say it for the third time, it's not the player's issue. It's come on, people who are behind this, figure it out, figure you know, it out and make it work. You just said it too. Like I said, great product. And then you listed those names. Talk about great people, great citizens, right? Like those are the role models we want our kids to grow up watching. And you want to go support those people. So great product, great people too. Steve Foxcroft, thanks for doing this, sir. Appreciate it. No no problem. Enjoy the Super Bowl and we'll see how Mahomes does. He may well win. In fact, I expect him to win. Yeah. But if he does, oh my goodness, Tony Romo is... Tony Romo is going to have a seizure if he wins. He's going to be so in love. You're right. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, found out this afternoon, about four o'clock, what the plans are going to be for schools across this province, or at least in many parts of this province, moving forward, including in Hamilton. And what we learned was that schools will reopen. Schools will be back in business. I mean, And when I say in business, you know what I mean? I mean, there's been schooling, but schools, students can now go to schools beginning on Monday. I want to bring in Don Danko, who is the chair of the public school board here in the city. Don, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. I'm happy to be here. So, I mean, this is, uh, we are on Wednesday. Schools are opening again on Monday. Are you ready? Well, when we heard that there was going to be an announcement tonight about the return dates, we decided we needed to start preparing for an early return or a later return. Uh, So we are ready, uh, but there has been a lot of work happening behind the scenes because we've had to move up some timelines in terms of communication, getting transportation set up, um, you know, making sure that that our staff are are prepared and and communication will be going out to staff tomorrow and our educators who will have to shift their lesson plans for Monday. And we respect that that takes work. Well, so, I mean, what you're saying, I guess, is that it's more than just saying the doors are open. 
Yes, in a large system like ours and many school boards across Ontario, there's a lot of moving parts. And uh, at a minimum, the communication plan is critical, particularly since we've been in this extended remote period um, and COVID is still out there. We, we still have to do our part. We need to remind everyone, here are the protocols that you need to follow in schools. Here is the screening that we need you to do that you maybe have taken a break from. And I want to get to all those safety things in a second, because there's really two parts to this. There's the education part and there's the safety part. We'll deal with the safety part in just a minute. First though, the, the teaching part, this is what teachers do. Teachers are accustomed to being in the classroom. The, the, the online stuff was the new thing for them. So I mean, is it fair to suggest that going back to school and going back to the normal instruction should be relatively easy for the teachers to run right back into? I have heard from a number of teachers that they, they were surprised but excited to be able to return in person. That's where they, they are the most comfortable and they're eager to see their students. At the same time, the the way you would deliver your lessons, the way you would organize your day is different online than it is in person. So there is some work to to shift the lesson plan uh, to be prepared for for Monday. We're going to have to incorporate uh, some reminders for students and just making sure everyone knows the protocols at the school and reinforcing those. So that's going to interfere with their typical day as well. But I know that our educators, um, they've they've been doing so much work to to shift as we've had to go from in-person to remote and now back. I, I know they will do their absolute best. You just said that you've heard from some teachers and they are generally, I think you said, excited about this. Have you heard from teachers unions about their thoughts, whether they're excited about this or whether they have concerns? I haven't heard directly from our teacher unions. Um, this is a, a recent announcement, so that that may be coming. Um, I did hear that there was a, a union representative in the, in, in the province who was indicating concern that, well, what other measures are we taking in terms of safety? Um, you know, how can we socially, uh, physically distant students in a classroom when the government didn't support smaller class sizes in the fall. Uh, in our board, we did invest funds to reduce class sizes as much as we could. Um, that's not the low numbers that we, we heard reported in the summer that there was some speculation it would be around 15 students per class. We're not there. But we do have the ability to at least face kids out um, you know, around a meter apart in elementary and in high school, they are actually two meters apart. And parents, so I asked about the teachers, I asked about the teachers unions, have, have you heard from any parents yet? Has anyone reached out and said whether they think this is great or they think this is horrible or something in between? I think, again, we have people that are in all different situations where some people are just so thrilled because they have been in such a tough spot. They have multiple kids at home. They've taken a leave from work or they're struggling to find supervision for them. Those families are like, thank goodness, I need my, my child back in school. And there's also the children that are really struggling with remote that just need that in-person experience. They need to socialize. So some families are thrilled. Um, other families are like, thinking, is, is it safe? We're still in stay-at-home orders. We're not supposed to work um, outside of the home if we don't have to. We, we can't gather. So it, there is that concern, and, and that, that's a fair point. Um, so it, it is a bit of all over the map. The schools are reopening on Monday, but one thing I'm unclear about right now, before this happened, and, and correct me anywhere along here that I get this wrong, but before this happened, were we not, at least in many schools, doing a rotating or an alternating thing where half the students were in for part of the day and half were at home and then vice versa? And, and if that was the case, is that what we're talking about going back to or is everybody back in the school now? 
That is a great question. It doesn't have a simple answer uh, because our elementary students, they have been in person all day every day and they will return to in person all day every day if that's what they're signed up for right now. Our secondary students um, are in an adaptive model where they go for the morning for one class every other day and they have a, a specific cohort that they're part of and, and that's so that we can have that two meter distancing for our teens in high school. And I think that that happened and it was directed, we were directed to do that back in the fall because there was, there seemed to be higher levels of spread in that age group. Um, at this time, we've never received direction to go to that type of model in elementary where you would have half the students for one day and half the next day. And I haven't heard any signal that that would be uh, happening anytime soon. So is my interpretation then that whatever you were doing before we went to the full lockdown is what we're going back to? That is correct. Okay. Now, you mentioned that some people have really been fine with the kids being home and doing the online thing. There was a piece in the spec today that I it raised some interesting points that I had never really thought of is the, you know, we, we, we do hear a lot of people complain about it, but some people have loved the online thing. Uh, some kids have really applied themselves and have enjoyed the solitude, I guess, and maybe not having to deal with some of the struggles of being a teenager or whatever else. And so they've probably done very, very well through this process and are in good shape when they come back to the class. We do know though that others have either struggled or have not applied themselves as much because it's very easy to get distracted when you're sitting in front of a computer screen and you can click on some buttons and do other things. How are the teachers going to deal with the fact that I would expect you're going to have some students who are right up to where they should be and others who are probably way lost in what they're supposed to be learning right now? That's a great question. So that would be more of a focus for elementary or secondary students just finished their term and are moving into a new term. So they're sort of freshly starting the, the, the new courses that they're engaging in. For elementary, um, I've heard a number of scenarios and a lot of teachers have had to adapt what they're doing with their students online to allow some, some students who maybe are having trouble engaging or focusing to catch up. So, uh, you know, I'm hearing sometimes students who get their work done get a bit of extra break time um, but they will have to do a check-in and teachers are so great at doing things like a diagnostic test and that sounds really fancy but it's really checking in to see okay where are my students who needs some extra supports uh, where do we have to go back and maybe revisit something and then how can we move forward as a class and, and we always know that our educators also look at how can I differentiate the teaching and learning for the students that are in front of me regardless of COVID that happens at any time but I think you're right that that is going to be a challenge because the gaps can be more, um, they can be more significant between students right now. And, and look, nothing, uh, nothing is normal with this. We understand that for everybody involved in this. And so normally you wouldn't take classes and take the kids who are doing really well and put them together and the kids who are behind and put them together. But are, are, are different options open? I mean, if it, if it suddenly, if you suddenly realize that we've got half the kids in the class and a bunch of classes that are way ahead and half the kids are behind, is there an option to group the kids who are most alike or, you know, is that, is that almost offensive now because we're, we're identifying, you know, kids that maybe aren't doing as well. I mean, how do you deal with this stuff? Even if you find that there's a problem. 
That's a great question. And, you know, many years ago, that may have been a practice. Um, but now we really look at, okay, we have a class. They don't necessarily need to progress through their learning at the same rate. And, and as long as we're getting them at the end point to, to meeting the curriculum outcomes, to, to learning and demonstrating their learning for what we really need to see, um, then, then that's what we need to do. So uh, you, you'll... I think that the classroom looks different than it did when I was a child and probably when you were a child. Um, oh, yeah. Not everyone <laughs> is necessarily doing the same thing. There's a lot of um, learning that, you know, is doing a project-based learning where a student can can learn more. If they're if they're ahead in, in the core curriculum, they can go deeper into a project that's an interest for them, and they're still continuing to learn and demonstrate skills. Um, but... But as you said, when we have that disparity between people who maybe had some additional support from home or who thrived online in remote learning and others who didn't, that that is going to be a challenge and we might need to add extra supports in. We wouldn't be looking at changing classes or grouping people together. One more thing before we get to the safety part of this, which is the other part of this, and it goes to the online. There are people, as you've identified and as the spec story identified, there are people who have really excelled and thrived under this online thing. Any thought, has it come up in front of the board at all or any thought that, you know, maybe we need to, even when this is gone, begin offering this as an option for those who just do better when they're not in the classroom and can do better online? I don't know how you would do it, but has that come up? We've certainly had discussions. Uh, it hasn't come up before the board at this point, but I, I think we're recognizing that for some students, this is a great environment and they're thriving. They're really, really succeeding. Um, so how might we continue to provide that beyond COVID whenever that is over? And I, I think the ministry is aware, uh, it's been raised to them that maybe it needs to be an option that we provide an opportunity to have a remote school even when we, we aren't required to do due to COVID. So that's something that, that is absolutely being considered and explored, but we haven't landed anywhere specific with that yet. And, and I mean, you've done it with other things. So, I mean, it is possible. I mean, Westmount has, you know, the course for most people, I think probably not. It's still Westmount, right? That if you're an elite athlete or something and you want to work on your own time frame, and I mean, there are options to do that. So so there there are ways that the school board has in the past given different ways for people to do school. Yes, there's certainly areas where we need to provide flexibility, and we've, we've been able to do that. This would be more structured. Um, it would be something that we would need to have certain supports in place. We would need ministry support for this. We would want to make sure we have an administrator if, if we're calling in a school, and, and we need some oversight and a contact person for families because it would then shift a family away from their, their in-person um, community school. But certainly it's, it's something we're, we're definitely talking about. Let's go to the safety part, because this is also obviously of huge interest to people before they send their kids back. Prior to everything being shut down, do you know offhand how many COVID cases the Hamilton Public School Board had dealt with? You're stretching my memory a little bit there, Scott, but... Was, uh, it, a I <laughs> was, I mean, was it a huge number? I mean, was it a huge number or was it rare? It was... It was around uh, in total since September when we went back to school to December. It was around 216 cases oh, okay. in total. Um, so we, we didn't have very many cases September, October. Uh, a number, of, as the cases increased in the community, we had a number come into the school in November, and we did have the highest numbers 
that happened in December, but it did align with the number of cases we have in the community. And that's because we were seeing cases come into the school. We weren't seeing uh, very often evidence of any spread within the school, which tells us that our protocols were working. Um, now when we're looking at safety and the students are, and staff are going back in person, we do have the additional tool of asymptomatic testing that the province has committed to providing. That will be decided in conjunction with public health, but where there might be a hot spot is what they tend to call it when we have a, an increase in cases in a, in a location in the community or where maybe there's a trend traditionally where they've had higher cases, um, then public health can say this is a school where we should do some asymptomatic testing to get a sense of are there cases that we're not detecting. So that's another layer that we're adding in um, and we will follow the direction of public health that can help us best understand are COVID cases coming into the schools and are we stopping them. And is that at the discretion entirely of public health or could principals or teachers say we think we want to have some of these tests here just to randomly make sure that we're good or, or, or is that entirely in the purview of the public health people? Based on the Ministry of Education direction, our, our local public health will um, be the, the uh, person who decides and, and helps to determine where it happens because we, we're not just doing this randomly. We're doing it based on where is there a higher risk um, and, and that would be using our resources in a purposeful way uh, in, in a way that we can expect to actually get results that might be helpful. Um, so it would be under the direction of public health. The rapid test is obviously different. Is there anything else that the schools are doing safety-wise or to, to that's been changed since they were shut down a while ago? Has anything been added or any new protocols or anything else been put in? Or is it, we, we did those things beforehand and we're going to continue those things? Well, the province has released a number of additional measures Um that, that they're sharing with the province that school board should be doing. Now, our board, we were quite proactive. So we've already been doing much of this. Uh, we've already had masking for all of our students. Um, the ministry extended that for younger grades. Uh, we've already expected students to wear masks outside if they can't physically distance. And there's been more clarity that that's an expectation from the ministry. I think um, generally we've, we've done everything that we need to do. So it's going to feel very much the same for staff and students coming back to our schools, but we're going to really reinforce those protocols and we are looking at with public health what does screening look like and are there any tweaks to that um, because right now people are used to to following our screening protocol and it determines if you have to keep your child home um, or if they can have to isolate and how long um, so there may be some adjustments to that but that is in uh, collaboration with public health that that will be determined. Last thing, we only have a second left here. I'm reasonably confident that no matter what you do or any other school board does, there are going to be some people who are going to be unhappy with this. We know that's the case. Uh, you know, it didn't matter which way this went. Some people would be thrilled. Some are going to be upset. Is it your job to make them happy or is it just your job to open the schools and make sure they're as safe as they can be? As much as we'd love to be able to make everybody happy, I think we just need to recognize different people need different supports. We have a job to make sure our schools are open and we're doing everything we can to keep them as safe as possible, where they're supporting other students in remote learning. Um, so we're going to focus on doing that. And if someone isn't happy but needs maybe some additional supports or consideration, I encourage them to reach out to their school or their, their trustee. Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton Public School Board. I know this news just came late this afternoon, so I really appreciate you taking some time to talk about it today on short notice. Thank you, Scott. 
That is, as I say, Don Danko, chair of the Hamilton Public School Board. You know, it, it's going to be really interesting when they when the students come back because I really do believe, and I asked Don about it, but I really do believe that teachers are going to be in an interesting spot in some cases because we've heard lots of anecdotal stories that some are just diving in and excelling at this online thing. Some are doing exceptionally well online and just blasting through. And whether it's the lack of distraction from other classmates or maybe, you know, if they're teenagers and a little socially awkward, they're not as worried about what's going on around. Who knows what the reason might be? Maybe they're just driven by themselves. Maybe they're just motivated as that's their normal personality. But some have done really well with this online stuff. And we know that to be the case. And we also hear anecdotally that some students, I don't know if it's many, but some students, not so well, because there are so many things. I just said that there's no distractions. Well, no distractions from other people, but you're going to sit, you're, you're a 15 year old, a 16 year old, you're sitting in front of a computer screen all day. And all it is, is one or two button clicks away from pulling up Netflix on the screen or playing a game or texting your friends or whatever else. We know anecdotally that there's an awful lot who have also struggled a little bit with this. I, I am going to be fascinated to see what happens when these kids come back into the classroom setting and how the teachers are going to sort through this thing. Because you, I, I will bet money, even though I don't bet money, but I figure of speech, I would bet money that the teacher is going to start talking. Let's say it's a math class and you're going to have a bunch of the kids who know exactly what you're talking about and a bunch of others who are just glassy eyed. And now how much time do the teachers have to spend? How much time are they expected to spend working to catch up the kids who didn't really do the stuff they were supposed to online or goofed off wasting then the time of the kids who did the work. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a complex thing and I don't know the answer to this. I mean, I'd like to say, because I'm a, you know, I'm big into personal responsibility. I'd like to say, well, you know what? Too bad, kid. Johnny, if you spent your whole time goofing off at home instead of doing the work, we're not waiting for you because Sally worked her butt off and is ready to go. I'd like to think that at the same time, I don't think that's going to be allowed. I don't think that's going to happen. It's going to be very, very complicated it is going to be very challenging for a lot of these teachers, especially in some of these classes where it's easy to fall behind and where the foundational stuff, if you don't catch them up, there's no chance they're going to succeed going forward. Math. I mean, I was terrible in math. I was atrocious in math to the point where I failed grade nine math and had to take summer school. It's not a point of pride, but here's the thing. Once I took summer school, and they really drilled it into me. All of a sudden I caught up. And then from then on, I was not great, but I was okay at it. But if I had been left behind to just fumble along with what I, did, I would have been buried going into grade 10, grade 11, grade 12, I would have been buried. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know what they're going to do. It's going to be a lot of time tied up in this. It's going to be very complicated. We, uh, be interesting to see what the teachers say they're able to do with this thing. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.
The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.